I met this girl, 20-year-old college girl, beautiful, smart, and uh, we started dating. And she told me about how she broke up with her previous boyfriend and how crushed he was. And how just, so I, I, I started the song from what I perceived as his point of view, but I couldn't finish it. You know, I got about two-thirds of the way through the song, and I, so I put it away. He is a rock star. He's a producer, songwriter, actor, an author, and a jazz singer. He's also someone that has touched us all with an iconic song that we will discuss in detail. I'm very honored to introduce Music Speaks' very first guest, Mr. Billy Vera. Welcome, Billy. Hi, Rich. I'm, I'm the one that's honored to be your first guest. That makes me feel really like I'm somebody. Hey, I, I don't think you have to worry about that, Billy. But from the very outset, when I came up with the concept of doing this version of a podcast, there was only one person, and I followed you for many, many years, and that was Billy Vera. And I'm extremely grateful and excited that you agreed to give your, your time to us today, so thank you. We'll, we'll, have, we'll make it fun. But that's the intent. I know your, your influence on music came from a lot of different directions. Whatever genre you've touched, you've done it so damn well. But I believe, if I'm not mistaken, in the very beginning, besides your taste in music, you had the influence of your mom. Ray Charles singers, I believe, from uh, yeah. the Perry Como show. Is that correct? Can you correct. share with how that, that kick-started your life in uh, music? Well, she had been a singer all my life, you know, uh, before I was born. And uh, we, when I was real little, we lived in Cincinnati for about three or four years. And she and my dad, who was a, a radio announcer, were on a station called WLW, which was a hugely popular station. Uh, and, and it could be heard from Toronto down to Brazil. So I, I was around that, you know, radio and television that early in my life. And then we moved to New York, and then she didn't quite make it to the big time as a soloist so she learned how to read music and that led to her becoming a background singer on the Como show and also on the Frankie Lane show and the Pat Boone show and on Como's hit records Catch a Falling Star and a lot of those and Magic Moments and so she would take me to the to the show sometimes and I'd see the rehearsals all the all the stars and uh, my dad didn't like to go out much because he worked odd hours he he got a job in New York as a staff announcer for NBC. So I would be my mom's date whenever she wanted to go to the theater or or to see music artists. So I got to see all the greats, Nat King Cole and all the great Broadway shows from West Side Story to Funny Girl and Damn Yankees, all those with my mom. And so that that was, and then she brought home records also. You know, she brought home Sinatra and you know, Nancy Wilson and all this great music of her generation. So then, of course, when rock and roll came in, I was like any other 12, 13-year-old. I, I uh, latched on to, to Chuck Berry and Fats Domino and all those people. And like any New York kid, I was crazy about Frankie Lyman, who made uh, Why Do Fools mm -hmm. Fall in Love. And uh, I think most New York male singers my age group would, would cite Frankie Lyman as a, as a major influence back then because he was our age, you know. We right. Well, maybe we can make it, too. But later on, I discovered Ray Charles, the other Ray Charles, the, the, the famous Ray Charles. Right. And he became a, a major idol of mine. Uh, I, unlike a lot of singers like Joe Cocker or Bill Medley, I didn't try to sound like Ray. 
but what the influence of Ray was to me was the way he would try different genres. You know, he one minute he'd be doing gospel-influenced rhythm and blues. The next minute he'd be doing uh, pop songs like Georgia On My Mind or Ruby. The next minute he'd be doing a country and western like I Can't Stop Loving You. And, I, and that, that was really a, a huge influence on me because I said, you don't have to stay. I, I don't have to stay in one idiom. You know, I can stretch right. out like Ray did to this day. I, I think Ray was one of the maybe the greatest musical uh, influence of the second half of the 20th century. Did you ever have an opportunity to speak with Frankie Lyman and, and tell him how you felt? No, he, he died pretty young. You know, he became a terrible dope addict, you know, uh, yeah. heroin addict. And I never got to meet him. And I'm glad I didn't by that time because he was, the poor guy was a mess. A friend of mine was a, a songwriter up at Roulette Records where Frankie recorded. And, and he, he had fin he was no longer recording, but he'd go up there to Morris Levy, the owner of the company, and try to get a little advance money from him. And, uh, which was, which was never easy, I understand, with Morris. No, Moish was a pretty tough guy. But uh, but my friend told me one time, he said, oh, man, Frankie was up here today, and he, he went into one of the writer's rooms, and he stole a guitar, and, and we all chased him up Broadway. <laughs> guitar. Boy, Billy, tell me about the Apollo and Judy Clay and what that part of your life meant to you. Well, by that time, I had gotten a, a, a job as a staff songwriter for a publishing company that was owned by uh, Columbia Records, CBS, and they put me under the wing of a fellow named Chip Taylor, who was a great songwriter. He was about four years older than me, and uh, oddly enough, he we, we went to the same high school, uh, as did his older brother, John Voigt, the actor. So... You know, we the first song that Chip and I wrote together was called Make Me Belong to You, and it became a hit by Barbara Lewis on Atlantic Records. And that was our entree to Jerry Wexler, who was the big boss up there. So we we said, man, we ought to write a, a duet for a couple of Atlantic artists and see if that would be great, you know. So we, we made a demo of the song with some local girl and me singing, and we took it up to Jerry, and, and he just loved the song. He said, man, this is a hit. He said, but, but get rid of the girl, and uh, I'll record you on Atlantic Records, which to me was a dream come true because, you know, Ray Charles was on Atlantic Records, the Coasters, the Drifters, Bobby Darren, all my favorite artists were on Atlantic. So anyway, then we had to audition more girls. And we went through about 20 of them, and, and each one was not right. You know, they sounded like they should be singing Stephen Sondheim songs or something. <laughs> and, uh, and finally, Wexler, at the last minute, said, listen, we just got this girl, Judy Clay. She's a cousin of Dionne Warwick. You know, her mom is sister, her aunt is sissy, sissy Houston, and, you know, why don't you audition her? There's some good DNA right there, huh? Oh, boy, and how. Well, Judy was adopted. She was adopted by Dion's and, and Dee Dee's mother, okay. Judy Warwick, who was the sister of Sissy Houston. The real name of the two sisters was Drink Art. They had a gospel group called the Drink Art Singers that had made some records on RCA and Savoy. And Judy was the lead singer, you know, over Dion mm -hmm. and Dee Dee and Sissy. So that's how good she was. So she was great, and and and, uh, and she but she walked into the office about 14 months pregnant, you know, <laughs> and, she, and she had a big chip on her shoulder, and and uh, because Dee Dee and Dion had already made it big, you know, and and Judy had never been able to get a, a solo hit. So she walked out afterwards, and they said, "What do you think? She she sings great, but can you handle that attitude?" I said, "Yeah, I can handle her. I got a, I got a sister just like that." <laughs> Came in handy. 
Yeah, you know, and, and Ju- as it turned out, Judy and I remained friends until the day she died. So anyway, we, we, we put her voice on the record, came out, and, and unlike most records, which take off in, in, in smaller towns and smaller cities, for some reason, Storybook Children broke in New York. Uh, and it, it became it was became number one on the black stations in New York and, and number three, I think, on the white stations. So we got an offer to play at the Apollo, which was another dream come true for me because I had always I had been a customer at the Apollo and, and always dreamed of being on that stage, you know. And uh, in fact, I was there when James Brown recorded that famous Live at the Apollo album, greatest show I ever saw in my life. And so, you know, we worked there, but this was before our picture had been out, so nobody had seen us. Okay. They knew Judy because she had played there by herself, but they never had seen me. So they were not expecting. No. Well, the stage manager was a fellow named uh, uh, Honey Coles of the great dance team, Coles and Atkin. And Honey said, listen, Harlem hasn't seen you yet. <laughs> he, said, he said, I got an idea. He said, he said, Judy, you enter from stage right, and Billy, you enter from stage left. And you let her take three steps out from the wings before you make your entrance. So I did. One, two, three, enter. And boy, I, I heard 1,500 people gasp. <laughs> and I could hear people out there in the audience say, that's him? Because they had heard my voice, you know, because right. the was a hit. But uh, they said, that's him? That skinny little white boy? <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and, and Honey wasn't sure how we would go over so they put us in the, they put us on second, which was really the spot where you put new acts and acts that are not as great as the, some of the others. But we killed it. We we went over like gangbusters. So after the first show, he comes up to our dressing room and he says, "Listen, man, I'm going to change up the show." He says, "I'm putting you you on right before the star." He says, "Because ain't nobody going to follow you two. And that so that became our oh, nice. from that point onward. What a shot of confidence, as if you needed it. I mean, well, every... you know, it, it was weird because some of the acts that I knew from, you know, playing in the club, they said, "Oh man, first time I played the Apollo, man, we were so scared, we we couldn't, our knees were shaking." And you know, for some reason, I I had no fear. I just felt like, I mean, this this may sound crazy, but I, I felt like I belonged there, you know. So when I went out, I just I wasn't overly, you know, obnoxiously confident. But I went out there, you know, and, and I've seen film of it. It was a kid that came with his little camera, and uh, and he shot us. He shot us at two shows, one from from the audience, and then he he filmed us from the wings. And uh, if you if you ever see, uh, there's a documentary about me called Harlem to Hollywood on Amazon Prime, and he was kind enough to uh, let us use that little footage that he had done. And you can see when I walk out there, I'm a little shy, you know. I'm, like 23 years old, you know, but but I'm not, I don't look scared, you know, which is kind of interesting, too. In addition to those photos, you you have some very cool people that comment on that documentary, and that's Dolly Parton, and you had okay. Dionne Warwick, and Joey D. That's an impressive crowd. And then the, the great Benny Golson, who's the first jazz album. My, my dad used to bring me home records from NBC. They, they didn't play rock and roll or jazz. So, you know, the guys at the record uh, library would, would say, here, here, your kid might like this one, or here's, here's, a, here's a pile of records for your, your son. And the first jazz album he ever brought me home was uh, Meet the Jazz Tet, where the great song Killer Joe came from, and I remember Clifford that Benny Golson wrote. And then many years later, when, I, when we were producing Lou Rawls, we hired Benny to, to write the horn charts for some of the some of Lou's songs, and uh, and, and Benny said, uh, and I told him, I told Benny that. He said, well, 
that's really interesting. He said, because my daughter was the one that turned me on to your music. And I said, you heard of me? You know, he said, <laughs> he said oh, man, yeah, I'm a fan of your stuff, you know. He said, I, he said, I don't just like jazz. He says, I like good rhythm and blues. And he said, I used to play with Bull Moose Jackson and, and Earl Bostic when I was young and starting out. So we, Benny and I are friends to this day. He's 90 years old. And whenever he comes to L.A., he, he calls me up. He, he invites me to his show and always calls me up on stage to sing with him. Billy, what do you take away from uh, your time spent with Lou Rawls? Well, it was it was really great work on. He's one of the great voices, you know, of the era, of the era. Uh, unique voices. His his manager once told me that he, I don't know who decides things like this, but he said that Lou was voted or whatever the third most recognizable voice in the world. Uh, I said, well, who's above him? He said, well, Muhammad Ali is number one, and and Howard Cosell is number two. <laughs> Because sometimes we, we recorded Lou in New York because we wanted to keep him away from his, his friends out here who would just get in the way, you know. Right. And so, Lou, maybe we'd be walking down the street, you know, or, or in an elevator, and he'd say, you know, Billy. And, and hmm. heads would snap. They'd turn in recognition of that voice, you know. Right. And that was so it was pretty cool. He, he ended up uh, recording seven of my songs, including one called Room of the View, which became, which uh, you mentioned in your email. And that one became sort of a, a modern-day blues standard. Uh, a lot of people recorded that one. It doesn't get any better than that one. I just tell you, it's I think of a rainy Saturday with a nice fine glass of uh, red wine. And listening to that, I could do that all day long. So very, very cool. And when you talk about Apollo and being out there and being very comfortable on the stage, my dad taught me a lesson early on. And he says, as you grow old, you're going to find yourself in different situations in life, either a particular experience or a person. He says, never ever be intimidated, but always show respect. And I think of that when you bring that up about the Apollo and seeing any uh, video of your work. You just go out there and just have a, a good time with it. You just are not intimidated, and uh, it do. shows. And, you know, what yes. your dad told you is really my my definition of class. Mm -hmm. you know, a, a person that has class is, is somebody who can fit in with all kinds of people, you know, every, you know, from the kings and queens down to, you know, the bums on the street, you know, and, and right. fit in. Because that's the key to uh, respect back in return is just to show it, and those folks around you will recognize that, and that's how it, how it goes. Don't put yourself um, above people, and don't put yourself below them either. Uh, share with us some of the other folks that you wrote for. I know um, Bonnie Raitt that we discussed. Yeah, Bonnie and, uh, and I were we served on the board of directors of the Rhythm and Blues Foundation, which which we, we sort of looked out for former rhythm and blues stars that fell on hard times, you know. And we do an event every year on the same city and the same day, uh, week as the as the Grammys, and it was really great experience. Well, after you know, Bonnie had gone through 15 years with Warner Brothers and and had not really she left Warner Brothers. As Jerry Wexler used to say, in an ocean of red ink, meaning she owed that money a lot of money. And and so her manager later told me that he had a hard time getting anybody to sign her after that. And he said the only label that would take her was Capitol Records. And even they only accepted. 
accepted her with uh, no front money and a, and a small budget to record her album. Well, that became Nick of Time, which became her, you know, a big hit. Sold Signature. Three, three million records, yeah. So after Nick of Time, she called me up. She says, man, I, now i got to make another album. I, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I don't write enough songs for a whole album. I, you got anything? So I like the way she sang ballads. And so I, I put together about three ballads. And then I was on the phone talking to my friend Michael Cuscuna, who the co-producer with me on Lou Rawls. He, he lived back in Connecticut. And, and his wife overheard us talking about, you know, me sending something for Bonnie. Now, Michael had recorded Bonnie in her early years on Warner Bros. He had produced one album with her. So she said, well, send, tell Billy to send that little Cajun song for her, and uh, meaning Papa Come Quick. Right. And I said, I said, I don't know, man. I said, this written really from a point of uh, male point of view, you know, it's like I, I envisioned it as, uh, you know, the girl's brothers are mad because she's going out with a disreputable guy and they want to go bring her back home. And, and, you know, Michael's wife said, uh, no, make sure, please play her that song. It would be perfect for her. So I, I threw it on the end of the tape. And, of course, there was a slot open. She already had a great a great ballad for the follow-up album, uh, I Can't Make You Love Me, which is, to me, one of the great performances. All-time of song. So anyway, so she needed a, an up-tempo song. So she called me up. She said, yeah. She said, I, I really want to do this song. She said, but I can't figure out that guitar lick my guitar player had played. I said, well, he he, uh, he played it in a in an odd tuning, in key of G. He said, Think he can show me that? I said, Yeah, I'll send him. I'll send him over. So I call him up. I said, Ricky. I said, You get over there if you have to move in with her. And you you show yes. her that lick, you know. So he did, and she because she wanted to play it herself, you know, on the on the record. Right. So that so then we we passed that hurdle. So then a couple of weeks later, I get a call from her. She's in the studio. She says, Man, I I can't get my band to play with the same feel as your your demo. I said, Well, maybe. Because your band is too good, you know, it's just, the demo is just me and Ricky and, and Chip, you know, banging away on guitars. I said, she said, well, can, can you bring your guitar and come over here and show the band how to do it? I said, sure. So I, I, get, I get in my car, I go over to the studio, and the drummer was playing. He's a great drummer, but he was playing too fancy, you know. So I said, look, just play thump, thump, thump on your bass drum, you know. Don't play anything else. And, and I told the bass player something similar. And then I, I played my little dopey guitar on there, and, and, uh, and it came out pretty good. And so the album, wound, I, I, I was all excited. Now I'm back in New York, maybe a week or so later, to work on Lou Rawls again. And, and the, the boss, Lou was recording for Blue Note Records, which was a subsidiary of Capital, the, the label that Bonnie was on. Right. So I told the boss there at Blue Note, Bruce Lundball, I said, man, Bonnie... Bonnie just cut one of my songs for her follow-up album. He said, well, don't get too excited. You know, Nick of Time was a fluke. She's not really a big seller. We'll be, oh. You'll probably sell about 400,000 copies. Well, the album ended up selling more than 5 million copies. You know, <laughs> luck of the draw. You know, so we, go, we, did, we did pretty good with go that. Go, Bonnie. One. Yeah, man. Yeah. And she was she was back in the black. Oh, and, well, yeah, she... She, she didn't have that much to cat, catching up to do because Capital didn't give her any front money, you know. So been doing well ever since. She's a great, great singer and a great slide guitar player, you know. Billy, one of your first uh, songs that charted was Mean Old World. Eventually, did that not land in the hands of Ricky Nelson? Well, yeah, that was that was the first song I ever took to a music publisher. And uh, mm -hmm. and uh, 
so I, I, I'd written it for this new girl singer, Dionne Warwick. I didn't realize at the time that Bacharach and David had her all tied up. So I said, I, so the guy gives me $35 advance money, you know, for the, for the song and paid for a demo. And so he calls me up, and I was pretty naive at the time, you know. He calls me up a couple of weeks later. He says, I got a record on one of your, on your, on your song. I said, oh, really? I said, who? He said, Ricky Nelson. I said, Ricky Nelson? He's white. What the hell? <laughs> How's he going to sing that song? He said, you you ungrateful little putz. <laughs> he said, Ricky's going to do your song five weeks in a row on the on the Ozzy and Harriet show, which was a hugely popular show at the time. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and so, you know, he said, it's, it's guaranteed to become a hit. It, it did. And, uh, and I said, man, what an easy business this is. <laughs> little did I know that it wasn't quite that easy all the time. Let's talk about Billy... Your signature song, At This Moment. Can you lead us through what I know is a fascinating story and one that many of us can relate to in so many ways? Well, I, yeah, I was still living at home and I wasn't, you know, I hadn't been doing too well in the 70s. You know, I, I'd had these couple of hits, you know, with Judy Clay and, uh, and also a hit on my own with Pan in Hand on Atlantic uh, in the late 60s. But in, in the 70s, the music changed drastically, and uh, I just couldn't figure out how to fit in. So I was doing mostly survival gigs, you know, with my little band around the New York and Connecticut and New Jersey area. And I met this girl, 20-year-old college girl, beautiful, smart, and uh, we started dating. And she told me about how she broke up with her previous boyfriend and how crushed he was and how, you know, almost really just crushed, you know. So I, I, I started the song from what I perceived as his point of view, but I couldn't finish it. You know, I got about two-thirds of the way through the song, and I, so I put it away. I was living at my mother's house like some loser musician, <laughs> and, and I put it away in the, my mother's piano bench. And then about a year later when she broke up with me and I was crushed, that's when I, I was able to, I took the song out again, and I wrote that last verse because I knew how that felt by that time. and uh, But I didn't think it was a commercial song. I didn't think it was a hit because it, it didn't have a, you know, what they call a hook chorus. You know, it just was a straight-ahead, old-fashioned, A-A-B-A song. And, and it, didn't have, uh, it didn't have a catchy title. You know, I could, in fact, I couldn't even think of a title for it until somebody suggested at this moment. And, uh, I mean, to this day, people always say, oh, I love your song, uh, what do you think, you know, or I love your song, if I could just see you again, you know, and uh, they just, that, that's a, a major weakness to me in the song. But my old manager from the 60s was living in California, and he was a degenerate gambler, you know, he's always out of money. And he called me up one day and said, listen, I, I need to make a deal for a deal, and you're the only one I know left that's, that's, that's you know, you're the best of what's left out here that doesn't. <laughs> he said, "Let me." He said, "Send me a, send me some songs, and I'll I'll see if I can get you a record deal." So he calls me up and he says, "Listen, by this time I was down in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands playing a gig, my band, and he tracked me down there and he said, "Listen, I got you. A, I don't have a record deal for you, but I got a publishing deal for you with Warner Brothers." He said, "But they they don't believe you're still alive. You know, <laughs> my career was dead." <laughs> you know, so he said. So they want you to. They want to fly you out here because they don't believe me that you're still alive. So, so after the the gig in St. Croix finished, you know, I uh, I 
flew out to L.A. and to hear me on the piano. And I played him at this moment in another song. And when I finished at this moment, here's Eddie Silvers, this guy who had been in pub music publishing for ages. He's got tears coming down his face. I said, wow. I said, maybe this song actually has something, you know. And uh, and so I signed with Warner Brothers and, and started the Beaters just to have something to do on the weekends. I didn't know anybody here. And to meet girls, of course. And nobody was signing a horn band at, at the record labels. You know, they they, they all there was a popular a band that had a hit record called the the Knack. You know, mm-hmm. and so they were all looking for another Knack, and uh, we were the as far away from that as you could get. And so, but but after all those acts failed, boy, we were about as different as you could get. And so we finally got a record deal on this Japanese company, Alpha Records, and we we got a little hit record called I Can Take Care of Myself. And then they, at this moment, was the follow-up. But as luck, as bad luck would have it, the, the promotion man got into a fight with the boss, and so there was nobody to really promote the record, and it only went to number 79. <laughs> and shortly after that, the, the Japanese pulled the plug on the label, or the, the American version of the label, and we were without a record deal again. With an iconic song, and your support system is, is nil at that nil. point. Dead. And so, uh, you know, I by this time, John Voight had come into the into the troubadour with his acting teacher while we were there. He says, "Man, Billy," he says, "You know, I, you know, we went back to the New York days." He says, "Man, I, I've never seen a singer do what you do." He said, "He said most singers just go out there and they manipulate the audience. I'm going to make you laugh. I'm going to make you cry. I'm going to make you horny. I'm going to this." He said, "But he said you don't do that." He said, "You you're 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 an organic performer." He said, you just lay it out there in, uh, in, in, a, in the most honest way I've ever seen anybody. He said, you should be an actor. I said, John, I don't I don't be an actor. You know, he said, no, no, you, he's very persuasive, you know, John. He says, uh, he says you, come, to, come to David's acting class, David Provo, who was, who was in the, later in the, the Sopranos. He has been in a movie called Mean Streets. He was a great teacher. So I, I, just to shut John up, I, I started going to this class. And it let the work. I kind of liked it, you know, and and I, I I got did a couple of plays and people saw me and then I did a couple of television shows and then I got this movie, uh, Buckaroo Banzai, that became this cult movie, you know. So about five years after the the record company ended, I, I was sitting around waiting for my acting agent to call me, and, and I'm still playing with the band meanwhile on weekends. Uh, and this guy calls up and he says, uh, he says, is this the same Billy Vera that has the band and I I said yeah because I always kept my my name my name my number in the phone book because I, I figured but but most people are too stupid to look you up <laughs> so, especially the kind of people that would bother you so I, I was I was never worried about that but somehow he, this guy really wanted to find me and, and so he had his secretary you know look all over the, the different area codes in LA until he found me and uh, he said, listen, we were at the club the other night. We heard you do this song. He said, I produced this show, and I write for this show called Family Ties. And, uh, well, I knew Family Ties. It was the number two show in the country uh, right after, you know, Cosby was number one. And uh, he said, we're doing an episode. And we, they, you sang this song the other night that we think would be perfect for the episode. So I said, what, what, what was the song? He said, I, I don't know the name of it. Typically, nobody knows the name of At This Moment. And I, so I, I knew that it was At This Moment. I, so I hummed a few bars, and he said, yeah, that's the one. He said, I said, well, yeah. I said, if you want to use it, call up Warner Brothers and, you know, get a license for it. So uh, we, we did it, 
And this was the this was in, in 1985, and and it was the episode where he, you know, Michael J. Fox meets the girl and falls in love. Well, now I had had songs on TV shows before, and you know, it was a couple of hundred bucks. It was nice. Right. But this time I got mail. I said, wow, maybe this song really does have something, you know. And and so I said, I, I started calling some record companies where people would still pick up the phone to me. Right. And uh, and nobody was interested, you know. By this time I'm 40 years old and you know too old to be a rock and roll star. And nobody thought it was worth their their spending their money on. So one day I'm having lunch with uh, this fellow named Richard Foos who owned a record company called Rhino Records, and they were in the business of oldies but goodies. And uh, but but he and I were friends. We'd we'd have these periodic lunches where we'd argue over you know whose version of Mustang Sally is the best one. You know. That right. Kind of thing. And I, so I told him about Family Ties. I said, I said, how many records do you need to sell to break even? He said, oh, we, you know, we have low overhead here. We could probably break even on a couple of thousand. I said, what if I, I guarantee you two thousand sales? You know, put out an album of my best of album mm-hmm. records, two albums that we did for them. And he said, sure, why not? I think he only did it because he liked me, you know. Right. He never thought he was going to make a nickel off of it. So they, by the time they got the album out, we missed the rerun of Family Ties. But as luck would have it, the following season, they bring the girl back, and, and she breaks up with him. The and famous they, scene, yes. They that famous scene. They use the song again. And, uh, boy, suddenly, I mean, talk about an organic hit. I mean, a grassroots. People started calling NBC. NBC told Rhino and told us that it was the most phone calls they ever got in the history of the network. Suddenly, people are calling radio stations. They're calling record stores. Where can we? Who's the singer? Where can we get this record? And suddenly, Little Rhino Records finds himself <laughs> sitting on a time bomb. You know what was going through your head at this point? I'm I'm just like overwhelmed. You know, I, wow, this is great. But it all happened so fast. Suddenly, it's number one in Hawaii or someplace in Kansas right. City, and and then it just kept going from there, leaping up the charts. I mean, it's the kind of thing that people dream about, or but it never really happens in real life. And 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 suddenly now, you know, my phone starts ringing at six o'clock in the morning, and it keeps ringing till two o'clock the next morning, and and everybody wanted a piece of me. You know, before long, on actually on my mother's birthday, January twenty fourth in nineteen eighty seven, uh, it hit number one. Wow. And meanwhile, my mother, who's you know down in Florida now, dying of cancer. She starts, she's calling radio stations trying to promote her son. And these, you know, these morning good guys, they're such wise guys, you know. They're making fun of her and she didn't care, you know. She just, she just wanted to help her her boy, (laughs) you know. Well, it worked. And so there it goes. And then next thing you know, we're, another one of my dreams come true is I got to be on American Bandstand, uh, you know, I understand Dick Clark was very helpful to you. Oh, he was great. You know, Dick used me on every show you can imagine. That he, you know, he was a he was a big producer, and he had me on these other shows that he produced, and he had me on uh, be a presenter on the American Music Awards, which he produced. He was very good. He actually came to the club to see us, and his wife his wife told me said he said you know he never goes to clubs. To see oh, him. nice. He loved what him. a compliment. And Billy, then we did that, the Tonight Show. Yes, all the time. Every every song you put out, <laughs> Billy Vera and the Beaters, Johnny Carson had you on there. Yeah, we were on there Terrific. Nine, nine times. Wow. And I was later told, a friend of mine was one of the guys that wrote his Johnny's monologues, and he 
told me, and also one of the crew guys, and they told me, they said, you know, you were Johnny's second favorite singer. I said, who was number one? He said, Tony Bennett was his favorite, but you were, you were number two. That was That's impressive. Cool. Yes. When going back for a moment, Billy, on the um, episode of Family Ties, if I'm not mistaken, the only recording you had at that time was recorded live of right. at this moment. How did you deal with that to prepare it for the uh, the television episode? Well, they, you know, it's funny because before you called, or before we spoke today, uh, somebody had reminded me on Twitter that it's the 35th anniversary of that first episode. So I I went to YouTube and I found it and I realized and I remembered rather that they had had us re-record it, go into the studio and and do a. a a studio recording of it because they didn't want somebody yelling out, "Hey, sing it, Billy!" in the middle of the club scene. You know. <laughs> well, you know, it's just one man's opinion. Uh-huh. That works. That's needed for that type of uh, scene on uh, Family Ties. But for me, that song needs to be listened to from in front of a live audience because of the interaction that you get. Yeah, I think uh, you're right. It's amazing. That's just my personal opinion. But Yeah, I think I think the audience should get royalties. You know? <laughs> not, well, you're nice, but you're not going to be that nice. I have, a que- I have a question about, you know, we all know the famous line from at this moment is, if you stay, I'd subtract 20 years from my life. Yeah, that's, There's a, that's, that's the, the one that, I came back with at, right. she broke up with me. Yeah. To close it out. And it's kind of, from the first time I listened to your song, and I'm really excited to ask you this stupid question, and that is, I never thought I'd get a chance. There was a hook in that song besides that signature line, and that was when you write or you sang, you just don't love me no more, instead of anymore. Now, Billy, I'm from Jersey, and you <laughs> you will never find a copy of the King's English on my bookshelf. Trust right, me. Right. But what prompted you to use "No More"? And well, it's ingenious, and it caught everybody's attention. And I think if you did it with correct grammar, you would have worked. lost so much. You're exactly right. It would not have worked. But I, it wasn't a conscious decision. It just it just felt right, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's you. That's you. You yeah. just, you go out and you do your thing as as it is. And well, you know, I once did a show, like a salute to singers type show at the Wiltern, the Great Wiltern Theater. Yes. And um, this woman that produced this, one of the producers of the show, she had it filmed. And uh, in fact, if you YouTube Billy Vera at this moment Wiltern Theater, you, you'll see that performance. I, I had a, they had a house band. I didn't they didn't they didn't bring want the beaters. And the, the conductor counted the song off too slowly. Oh. And I had to make a split-second decision in this huge theater full of, you know, all those big people, top people. Do I stop him, make him start again at the right tempo, or do I go with it and see where that slower tempo takes me emotionally? So I did the latter, and, and it got a huge, huge response. And um, so I didn't know that they were she was filming it. So, you know, 20 years later... She contacted me on Facebook, and it turned out she was one of Sinatra's girlfriends. Mm. And she, and she told me this, this the following story. She said one night when Frank came to see me, uh, I played him that video of you, and he made me play it again and again and again. And every time he came to my house, he made me play it. He said 
He said, this is one of the greatest performances I've ever seen in my life. He said, who is this guy, and why isn't he a huge star? Right. You know, uh, and it kind of, you know, again, why didn't I meet him when he was alive? <laughs> but, I, but, I, but also, I, it made me think, apropos of what you had said about no more, now he was kind of a stickler for grammar, even though he was a Jersey guy himself. Right. Uh, and I, I wouldn't have, I, I would have thought that that no more would have just pissed him off. <laughs> right. But it, you know, it didn't. And I, I imagine. I said, wow, what if he had sung it, recorded it, man? How great that would have been. Yes. To have a Sinatra record, you know. And my name's not Sinatra, but. That is my favorite video of any of your performances oh. at the Wiltern. And just at that one point, nearing the end of the song, where there's the break, and you grab the microphone off the stand, and you give that sly smile, like, <laughs> okay, I'm, everybody's ready for the strong finish. And it, to me, it's masterful. It's unbelievable. Thank you. When it comes to that song, and I think of you know what led you to writing the lyrics, it's safe to say many of us have had a relationship, Billy, where the other party enjoyed being loved more than they were in love with us. That's and the narcissistic those, personality. Yes, and those affairs of the heart, to me, seem to be the toughest to ever get over. And your lyrics just perfectly describe what so many of us guys in our life have gone through in, in, in heartbreaks and breakups. Yeah, apparently so. You know, here's another little tidbit about that song. Another woman I met on Facebook, she told me she was the granddaughter of one of the two men that wrote uh, the great song Moonlight in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And she said, you, she said, you know, your song and Moonlight in Vermont have something in common. I said, really? What, what would that be? She said, neither song has any rhyme. Oh. And I, and to that point. Until she told me that, I had never even realized that, you know, because I'm a pretty good rhymer when I want to be. You know, once I wrote a song that had a had a rhyme with, that rhymed, uh, I'd jump right off a plane, I'd fight off half of Spain, I'd swim Lake Pontchartrain. I mean, how mm -hmm. many how many guys could rhyme that? <laughs> <laughs> but but somehow, for some reason, at, at this moment, does not have one rhyme in the whole song, and and so that made me think about that a lot, and. And then finally I, I came to the conclusion, maybe months later, that that made it more conversational. Right. You know, because people don't, you know, you and I have been talking for a half hour or whatever now, and neither of us have rhymed with anything we said. <laughs> it was meant to work no matter what. Well, Billy, you've given us a terrific lead up, and for our listeners, here is At This Moment. What did you think I would do at this moment When you're standing before me With tears in your eyes Trying to tell me that you Found you another just don't love me no more. Ooh. 
I'm faced with the knowledge that you just don't love me. Did you think I would curse you or say things to hurt you? Cause you just don't love me no more. terrific moment listening to that again with you spending time with us it's a special song and it's been a special treat for us to listen to that and to learn about your other songs let me ask you a question one is 
your autobiography, Harlem to Hollywood, how much of a reward did you enjoy seeing that to come about? You know, I, I had fought doing it because uh, people would always say, man, you got so many great stories, you ought to put them in a book, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I, I said, well, I never wrote a book before, man. I mean, I've written lots of articles. And Did you not do a, a novel, though? The uh, well, the, the first one was, the, okay, The Dollop of uh, Toothpaste. Dollop of Toothpaste, yeah, that's, that's, that's my newest book. Awesome. Yeah, but Harlem uh, to Hollywood, uh, you know, finally I, I, I just said, well, people are bugging, they'll stop bugging me if I write this thing. <laughs> and, and, I, once I, and luckily, I've kept all my, my date books. And, and so I, in terms of accuracy, it's really accurate. You know? mm-hmm. So there's that. And as, as I went along, I said, you know, I got, I got some pretty good stories here. You know, so people, see, people really liked it. Was was an interesting process, you know. And I, but once I got started, I just kept going chronologically, you know, and it went on down. Terrific. Where do you call home? I'm still in L.A. And where would your fans find uh, and be able to obtain the CD, Timeless? Uh, well, on Amazon or on CD Baby, you can get it there. Uh, that that was uh, that's the most recent CD I've done, and uh, did it about a year ago, and really proud of the album. In closing, Billy, if you were a host today of a TV talk show, mm-hmm. who would be your first musical guest? Probably a lot of dead people, you know. No, they got to be alive, Billy. <laughs> That's just going to make it difficult. <laughs> oh, man, that really makes it like because all my favorites, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of, you know, old music. I, right. I really don't keep up with uh, the latest music. Okay, then, so I'm going to take and give you a break. Who would be your all-time musical guest that you'd have, dead or alive? Doesn't matter. Well, I, I knew Ray Charles a bit. You know, I won my Grammy for uh, writing about Ray Charles, one of about seven Ray Charles CDs or box sets that I did. So I think I think he's a great, pretty great storyteller. He'd be a great guest. And of course, one of my other heroes is Duke Ellington. I, and, uh, and he's very well-spoken. He was a very well-spoken man. Uh, so I think he'd be a marvelous guest. I don't think anybody really ever went into depth with Duke. And and the third person I would like to, to have would be uh, Louis Armstrong. Wow, what a lineup. You know, when my mom was on the Como show, she, she kept me a, an autograph book, uh, which I still have. And one of the autographs that she got for me was Louis Armstrong. And he, and he always... I, he signed it in green ink, mm. and uh, of course somebody told me that that he always signed in green ink. For, I don't know why, but that was his thing. You've done some voiceover work, Billy. Yeah, that's where you I made sh- most of my income uh, for quite a few years uh, doing voiceovers. I stumbled into that. Well, um, that was a good stumble, though. Yeah, I was doing a radio show out here just once once a week, playing old records just for free, you know, because they didn't pay anything and. But I did it for fun because I, I have a huge record collection. And one one day I came into the station and there was a note in my mailbox that said uh, he has an interesting voice. You believe him when he talks. Would he be interested in doing voiceovers? And you know the first one I did was like I think for uh, not Toyota but one of those cars and uh, caught on. You know I had a I had a different voice and then boy my phone started ringing off the hook. And next thing you know I mean I'm doing two or sometimes three a day, and I was just making money hand over fist, more than I ever made in rock and roll, I'll tell you that. (laughs) Well, Billy, I can't thank you enough, and this is, as you know, my premier podcast episode of Music Speaks. 
Well, I wish and you good luck with 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 your podcast. And, uh, I I thank you. I'm most grateful for well, you agreeing you to be here. I'm going to yes. tell you something. You I'll, have, you know, Johnny Carson was head and shoulders above any other nighttime interviewer. Mm-hmm. And his secret was this, and you, you have it as well, is he made the guest the star. You know, whereas a lot of these other guys that, that do the late night shows now, they, they're, they're making wisecracks at the expense of the star or drawing the attention to themselves. But Johnny never did that, and and he said, "Look, I'm a, I'm here five nights a week, man. Don't get tired of me if I. <laughs> you know, it's 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 just good business to make the guest the star, and that's how you're doing it too. I noticed. Well, As thank you. We I've had some nice compliments in my Keep life, but that's that's one I will cherish. Billy, I wish you well. You stay well, thank and you, when this pandemic is over, you're going to find me in the uh, audience at Studio City. Thank you very much, and you have a good day ahead. My the recording of At This Moment was played during the podcast with permission by Billy Vera. Please hit the subscribe button to be the first to learn of our next episode of Music Speaks. Until then, thank you. <laughs>